This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. You are listening to the Football Odyssey. I'm your host, Aaron Harris, and today I'm speaking with Doug Drennan, the founder of profootballreference.com, the go-to resource for player, team, and league stats in professional football. In this interview, Doug and I discuss his early passion for sports data, the process of creating pro football reference, alternative football leagues, and we even bounce around some insane ideas that we'd like to see in the NFL. As always, feel free to subscribe, share, and let me know what you think of our conversation. I'm confident that many of you will appreciate hearing from the man who built this site that has become a valuable fixture for us pro football nerds. So, without further ado, I bring you Doug Drennan. All right, Doug, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for taking the time. How are you tonight? Just great. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. In our email exchange, you said that there are some years where you pay a little more attention to the NFL than others. And I'm wondering if you had the chance to catch any of the uh, playoff games thus far this year. I caught most of all of them, not not wild card weekend, but the uh, the divisional round and the championship games I watched. And that was a that was a good decision. Some 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 compelling stuff happening there. Any one game that's standing out to you? No, I I've never been a fan of any one NFL team. I just follow the league as a whole and kind of like to watch subplots evolve and my allegiances will kind of shift around a little bit from year to year. So I just, uh, unlike most NFL fans, I watch, I always have watched from a fairly detached perspective and maybe, maybe in one game, uh, something will happen and I'll start pulling for one team instead of another. Most of the time when I sit down to watch a football game, I don't know which team I'm going to root for until I start watching it. And then I just naturally will, will start pulling one way or the other. Has it always been that way since you've been watching football or was there a team that you followed when you were younger? No, I never had in, in football, in major league baseball and in the NBA, I've never had a team. And I, I attribute that to growing up in Oklahoma, which is sort of no man's land in terms of, uh, you know, professional sports franchises The thunder obviously weren't around back when I was growing up. So we would get some, we're about halfway between Dallas and Kansas city, but I never felt really close to either one of those markets. And yeah, so I just, you know, I would come up with a reason to like a team or more likely to not like a team. I have various teams and players that I don't particularly care for and will spend more, I've spent more energy in my life rooting against particular teams than, than for particular teams. Is there uh, one team in particular that you always love to see lose in football? Uh, well, I'm, I'm I'm not a Tom Brady fan, so the the Patriots that didn't uh, you know uh, it's been a rough twenty years. Yeah. I got to say, <laughs> so yeah, we're we're talking here on the day that that Brady actually retired. Yeah, there was there was a time when I think there was a legitimate debate to be had about whether Brady was actually any good or whether he was a product of a system, a game manager type. And I think 
you know, that, that died a long time ago and everyone recognized that he is uh, almost indescribably good. And so no, nobody's really trying to make a, a case that Brady's not good anymore, but that doesn't mean I have to like it. Yeah, there was, um, I was reading through a form uh, a couple months ago and someone was talking about Brady's kind of goat campaign and someone had kind of made a good analogy where like those first three Super Bowls, I think he kind of achieved the same level as being on par with Troy Aikman. You know, he had won those three Super yeah. Bowls. He was part of a team that had really good defenses. They had solid rushing attacks. You know, they had a running back by committee approach, but you know, he was a guy that made big time throws, but didn't go crazy on the stat sheet. And then 2007 is whenever he really started pursuing being one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. And then, uh, after losing a couple Super Bowls to the Giants, people thought he was never going to catch Montana. And then finally he got over that leap once he defeated the Seattle Seahawks. Yeah, that, that sounds about right. He, he's, I mean, he's been, he's been in the league for 23 years or whatever it is. So he's, he's had opportunities to have a lot of, uh, a lot of ups and relative downs. So we, we all thought he was one thing and, and he changed the narrative on us more than once. Yeah, he definitely has a habit of ruining a lot of people's uh, dreams and then breaking a lot of hearts. So before we go deeper into pro football reference, uh, I want to start off this conversation by talking a little bit about uh, about baseball, of all things, Uh, because from what I understand, you were actually very much influenced at a young age by Bill James, correct? That is correct. Yes. So what was it about his work that kind of influenced the way you thought about sports and I guess other things in general? Well, um, so. My dad, I'll, I'll go back. My uh, Most people who become sports fans will end up becoming that way because their parents were sports fans. And so they got into it from a young age. Neither one of my parents uh, nor my two brothers really had any interest at all in sports. So it's it's sort of a mystery how I ended up such a fanatical uh, sports person, but I definitely have always been one. And my dad was a classic uh, computer nerd way back before being a computer nerd was cool. So he was an IT guy, like back in the late seventies. So he would bring home stacks of punch cards and, uh, and things like that for us to play with. And, but he, he, both of my parents tolerated my obsession with sports and my dad was always looking for sort of common ground. So he, when he saw anything that was at the intersection of, of computers or math and sports, he would, he would uh, use that as an opportunity maybe for, for he and I to um, share a common interest. And so he bought me the baseball abstract, the very first one in 1982 for my 11th birthday. And, uh, you know, I probably, to be honest, didn't quite understand the nuances of what I was reading when I was 11 years old, but it, it still was unlike anything else that I had read at the time. And my dad, being a math and computer guy, was also impressed by it. It didn't seem to him like the normal uh, sports talking head fair. And so he thought it was intriguing. And so that, that was kind of our tradition was we would, every year we would buy the buy the baseball abstract when it came out and read it together. And, and I mean, we didn't read it together, but we would read it and, and talk a little bit about it. And that was, you know, his way of getting me to, to think about math and my way of getting him to think about sports a little bit. 
And there was another book at the time that had kind of played a part in developing your sports and data combination. That was a uh, basic betting. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, um, yeah, that was another thing that my dad and I did. We, uh, it was, it was this book that had basic programs for, you know, predicting point spreads of games. And I'm sure the algorithm was, uh, was not a money winner. If you were to attempt to dust that thing off and, and use it right now, uh, you would, you would lose the VIG and perhaps a little bit more. So uh, I don't recommend it, but again, it was a nice way for my dad and I to sort of uh, share a common interest. And, you know, I, I've, I've also been interested in, in predicting things and gambling ever since, ever since I can remember, I think probably like most sports fans. And reading that book at the time, did it kind of make sense to you at an early age or did it kind of take some time to really, because I obviously, like you mentioned earlier at 11 years old, you didn't really comprehend fully the abstract, but was this at a time when you, you had developed a little bit of a mathematical sense? Um, probably not. <laughs> to be completely honest, I, I probably, I, I, I don't remember this specifically, but my guess is that um, my dad would be explaining things about the, uh, the ins and outs of the computer code to me, and I would be smiling and nodding and just patiently waiting for the, uh, the output. That, that would have been my guess. But, you know, you, uh, you get exposed to things and, and they, they sink in on some level, probably, even though you, you, you're not fully cognizant of it. Did you have a, a realization growing up that you wanted to work in sports data? I don't know that working in sports data was actually a thing that would have ever occurred to anyone back in the, in the eighties. I mean, okay. like every other sports fan, I was going to be a, a professional athlete. I was going to be a basketball player. That was probably my favorite sport. And uh, in fifth grade, I was pretty good. And by, by middle school, I started making B teams. And then high school, I was, I was not good enough to play basketball. So it was, it was much earlier that I learned I wasn't going to be a pro athlete. And then, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't even remember having a thought or a discussion with anyone about the possibility of like working in sports. I mean, there was, there was being an athlete and, you know, if you're going to be a coach or a commentator or whatever, you pretty much had to have been an athlete before. And so I, I don't think that that thought ever occurred to me. Now, did you ever take a job as like writing for magazines or I guess maybe into the 90s blogging about any sports data or any of your insights into that field? Yeah, so the the beginning of the story with Pro Football Reference is actually my um, relationship with Sean Foreman, who started Baseball Reference and encouraged me to start a Pro Football Reference. He and I met because we were both working on a baseball annual. So actually, Bill James, when he retired, he gave the rights to the name Baseball Abstract to a group of people. And there was some infighting among this group of people. And so it splintered off into two groups. And one of those two groups um, had this, uh, this annual that they were putting out called the Big Bad Baseball Annual. And I knew some of the guys uh, from that, and I got involved with them through the old time internet um, uh, news groups and things like that. 
And Sean was working for that, uh, for that publication. And so we met and just started talking and, uh, that's, that's how I get to, got to know Sean and Sean's the one that encouraged me to start pro football reference. When you were coming up or when you were starting to write about different, uh, you know, sports analytics or sports statistics, was it predominantly baseball at first or were you writing anything about football at the time? Uh, well, it started as baseball in the, in the mid to late nineties. And then I shifted over to fantasy football because I, again, you know, I, I have the gambling bug and fantasy football was a way, was a way to scratch that itch that I really enjoyed. And there just, there wasn't any kind of, I don't want to say there wasn't any mathematical analysis happening. There wasn't really even any clear headed logical analysis of fantasy football happening when it was and it's in its early days. And I know the early days of fantasy football go back to the seventies or the, or even the sixties, but you know, when it was becoming popular as a mainstream thing, um, I just didn't feel like there was a lot of genuine analysis. And so I started collecting data and analyzing it as a way of just helping me win my own leagues. And then I got involved with, you know, some of the early internet fantasy football communities and met some people. And so really fantasy football is where most of my writing has, has been done. I, I think that's true. Did the, did that information help you win your leagues? Uh, it's hard, hard for me to remember because I'm not really an active fantasy player anymore. I, 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 I seem to recall like being the total points leader and finishing, losing the Super Bowl a lot of years. Maybe, maybe those just stick in my mind, but I, I felt like I always had the best team, but didn't ever quite win. Um, I, I, you know, I don't really, um, it wasn't really about winning for me. I, I like to win. It, it was, it was about the process. I just, I enjoy, I enjoy the process of thinking my way through some things, you know, trying to solve puzzles, uh, make predictions. Sometimes they work out, sometimes they don't. And you sit down on, on Sunday morning and you flip on the TV and you have an excitement to you that, um, that is, uh, that's, I don't know. I've always found that compelling and enjoyable and, to me, the ultimate winning or losing of it never was a huge, um, I mean, I would rather win than lose, but like losing didn't make the experience uh, overall less enjoyable, I don't think. Yeah, you you enjoy the process for what it was. I do enjoy the process, yeah. Yeah, yeah I did fantasy football one year and I was a uh, senior in high school and we had this uh, web design class that was uh, through the virtual learning. So uh, there was three of us in a six person league and by luck, I got to the championship game, but my team was easily the worst team out of anybody I had. I'm a Steeler fan and you know, I'm someone who has to root for a team as opposed to individual players. And yep. so basically half my players were Pittsburgh players. It was Ben Roethlisberger, mm-hmm. Antonio Brown. I guess it had to be Richard Mendenhall at that time. And just yep. by luck, I was able to play against opponents whose players were awesome, but they just had a bad week. <laughs> and I and I just snuck in, but it, it was a fun experience. Fantasy can definitely be like I think an addicting thing. 
for a lot of people, especially I think if you want to incorporate the statistics and the data approach to it. Yeah, I really, I really caught the bug. It, it really um, turned me into a real NFL junkie for a lot of years. Mm-hmm. Did you ever play Stratomatic growing up? I did. Yeah, I played Stratomatic uh, Status Pro. There was a thing called AppBaw, um, and I played the the football version, the baseball, the basketball. I mean, the only problem was finding uh, people who were willing to play it with me because, like, that's you don't you got to be a certain kind of person uh, if you're in eighth grade and you want to break out these dice and cards, and and it's not always easy to like. I don't know, <laughs> find, yeah. a, find a crew that is interested in doing that. But I had a couple of buddies that would, um, that were somewhat interested in it. And um, I, I did some, um, did some solo uh, playing of, of those games. And I really, yeah, that stuff was, that stuff was great. I ate that up when I was young. Yeah. I never, I've never played it, but a lot of the people around your age, I know who are really into fantasy or stats, they played a lot of Stratomatic growing up. Yep. Now for pro football reference, you mentioned that Sean Foreman was the one that had persuaded you or had pushed you to go ahead and start the site. So what was some of the uphill battle that you had to do in terms of starting the site up? Because if I remember correctly, there wasn't another database on the internet that was doing what pro football reference was that you were designing it to do. And you're talking about documenting a sport that officially has been played professional since 1920 or 21. So what was some of the challenges that you had to take on when you were launching the site? Well, I never really thought of anything as a challenge because I was, I was really only doing any of it because I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And I might have a touch of an addictive personality. And, and so I, I would, you know, once, once I got started with it and, you know, the realization occurred to me that I was doing something that, you know, I was creating something that really wasn't on the web and that might become something cool. I didn't think it was going to become, you know, a, a big money-making uh, company that, that wasn't, you know, this was 1999, 2000 that really wasn't in the mindset of a lot of people that created stuff for the web back in those days. Like you just, it, the web was kind of for hobbyists. And if you had an interest and there was, there was no resource uh, regarding that interest on the web, you just, you just built it. And, you know, you, you did it because it was enjoyable and because people would appreciate it. And, you know, people would send you emails and tell you this is awesome. And so, you know, the more, the more players I added to the database, uh, the more players I wanted to add to the database. And, and so it was just slowly but surely, I kept getting positive reinforcement of people telling me, hey, this is pretty cool. And me saying, hey, this is, this is pretty fun to build. Um, I was, at the same time, I was, well, my, I learned a lot about computer coding um, in order to build a database. So I, I wrote myself some custom software. I'm using air quotes on software, but to, you know, most of the data entry I did was I had an old copy of uh, total football, which is, if you haven't seen that, it's a big 50 pound book that has everyone's stats in it. And I think mine was from 
1996 or something like that. And so I would just hand enter the data and I had a, I had a program that, um, you know, would put it in a format that was useful to me. And well, here's, so you talk, talk about challenges. Um, the first iteration of the pro football reference database had rushing touchdowns and receiving touchdowns collapsed, collapsed into a single column because I was worried about disk space. I wasn't sure that I had enough room on my hard drive to keep both <laughs> rushing mm -hmm. touchdowns and receiving touchdowns separately uh, because I was working uh, I, I, on a pretty old computer and, a, and there was no possibility that I was gonna have a, a lot of extra money anytime soon to upgrade the hard drive. So that's what I did. And yeah, I know all you nerds out there are calculating how many bits it actually takes to store an extra, uh, an extra column of data and uh, calling me a moron right now. And you're not wrong, but that was, that was the mindset anyway, at the time was, you know, you just had to think about where you could get the data um, how you could, how much data you could store and, and, um, and how to get it, get it computerized. So, you know, I, basically I took, I don't know what season it was, maybe 99. And I just, I don't know, went to some, any old site that had the current year's, um, data and I kind of cut and pasted it. And then I just started working my way backwards from there. And I started with the, uh, the most prominent players. So I just went through total football and kind of circled anyone who had made a pro bowl and started there and then worked my way backwards. And it was, it was just a fun project. It was a hobby. It was a way to spend time that was enjoyable. Did, um, did total football have the stats from the players from like the American football league and the, um, like all American yes. football conference too. Like, did you, did yes. you have to go through any extra legwork to try to find those stats? No, I don't think so. Um, uh, I, I always, so I, I remember back in those days, whenever I was at a used bookstore, I always looked around for any kind of old reference book that might have some bit of data that wasn't a total football or that I didn't get some other way. And uh, there, there's also there's another old uh, sports encyclopedia by Neft and Cohen that is it's a little bit of a different flavor from total football but it definitely it had some stuff that um, that total football didn't have including I think um, postseason numbers were in a better mm -hmm. format in that book if I'm remembering correctly so that was that was uh, it, it was you know it's the little things that bring us joy in this life and <laughs> I just remember looking at looking at pulling this thing off the shelf at the bookstore and saying, "Ooh, I could I could add postseason data for Duriel Harris into my database. That is exciting." It, when you say it was like in a different flavor, I mean, do they go about like approaching, you know, I, compiling I these? I can't even remember. Well, okay, so I think I think total football is more about the player. And it's been a long time since I opened up yeah. either one of these books, but yeah, if you want to know. Everson Wall's statistics, you go to total football and they're all right there. But I think Neft and Cohen had a lot of the same data, but it was more organized as a narrative around a particular season. Okay. So if you wanted to read about the 1983 football season, um, then you could have the standings and leaders and the, and the box scores of the playoff games kind of right there together 
instead of having to look at them player by player. Okay. That was, that was, that was curious for me to ask because I know the American football league for a while didn't even keep statistics for the most part. I think there was a, a lot of effort whenever P Roselle had the Elias sports bureau go back and try to compile all this information because I, I guess just no one thought it was really important back in those days to kind of keep track with this. Yeah. I, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know specifically about the kind of thing you're talking about, but I was just reading a book about the old ABA, the, mm-hmm. the, wait, that's, that's the name of the basketball league with the red, white, and blue balls. Yeah. The ABA. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, there, there was a, there was a chapter in there about early efforts at data collection or not. And it was just like, I mean, no one knew in 1961 what people like you and me were gonna we're gonna be sitting around talking about that right they if if you time traveled a 1961 person from the from the afl uh, and showed them this conversation they would think we were from a different planet i think it just it wasn't the same thing they'd be rushing back to 1961 <laughs> i got yeah. so I, I wouldn't blame them now, how did the the site evolve over time? I mean, were, were there some things where it began to take on a life of its own and you were starting to do things with the site that you hadn't planned on doing in the beginning? Yeah, uh, I never planned on starting a blog. And, you know, the blog was really not, that's that doesn't fit in with, with what the sports reference sites were originally about. And it doesn't really fit in with what the sports reference sites are about now. It's not a it's not a place for content, but I I don't really remember why I started blogging, but I did, and that was another thing that that just for a period of time really excited me. And and you know I would wake up in the morning and say, "Ooh, I have an I have an idea for a, for a blog post. Can't wait to get my hands on the keyboard to you know to run that data and start writing." And you know I'm not. I'm not at that place in my life right now, but it was a, it was a good, it was a good fun hobby for a while. And I never planned to do that. I honestly don't even remember why I started doing that, but that was another thing that was, that was very enjoyable. And that was how I met um, Jason Lisk. And uh, I didn't meet Chase that way. I met him through some fantasy football connections talking about uh, Chase Stewart, who was, one of the he may have ended up writing more on the blog than I did altogether, but I I like the idea that the blog published things regularly, and I wasn't able to do that for a period of time for a variety of reasons, and so Chase uh, stepped up, and Jason uh, kind of was a commenter that always did good work in the comments. So we reached out to him and asked if he'd be interested in writing. And he's, you know, those two guys are good friends of mine to this day. Yeah. Back in, I'd probably say from 2010 to 2013 was when I was at the height of my stats fandom. And I do remember vaguely looking at the blog, uh, but a lot of those are still actually available to read. And it's actually harder to find them than it should be at this point, but yeah. Well, there was a few of your uh, series that I really enjoyed, and some of them are actually still relevant today. One of them was your Insane Ideas series. <laughs> yeah, that was okay. Yeah, that yep. one was fun because th- there were two of them that really made me think. One was about uh, cutting scouting. Yeah. About like taking resources away from scouting and putting it towards 
upgrading your facilities to attract free agents, paying your coordinators more so they don't want to go off and be uh, head coaches. Um, and what was the other one? The other one was if there was an 18-game schedule, the NFL should only require six players to play 16 games. Right. Or, yeah, the players should be capped at 16 yeah. games. Yeah. So I'm, that you'd, go ahead. you'd have some strategy in terms of, like, when do you when do you rest your guys or whatever. I mean, that, that makes it I don't know. That's it's an insane idea. But that that that's what I love. I mean, that's like that sort of freakonomics approach that I think is good for like data and storytelling. Because after, because whenever I was reading that blog post and you talked about, you know, if you're at a point now where you don't really, if you have a good lead in the division, do you really need to play this person against an inferior team, or do you activate both of them going into a game and kind of keep them guessing up until kickoff, like which one is going to play? I don't, I don't even really remember writing uh, at that much detail, but yeah, I, I remember there was debate about, should we expand the schedule? And at that time, like, I, just, I didn't understand. Why would you not want more football? I, I'm, I'm still a little unclear on uh, why people are opposed to having more NFL football games. Uh, the, I, I don't see the benefit of a shorter season personally. You don't so I'm in favor of, I'm in favor of a bigger schedule, but I understand um, there's already a lot of injuries and, you know, the union might have something to say about, you know, working more for the same amount of, same amount of money. And so that was at the time that seemed like a, a potential compromise. Well, it, it could theoretically happen. I mean, I have no reason to believe that we're not going to go to an 18 game yeah. schedule after this year. Yeah, so that's you, right. Do you, do you think that there is such a thing as like NFL fatigue at for a certain point? I mean, I don't know. Not for me. Uh, like, I mean, I, 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 you hear the same thing in college football with regard to bowl games. Every year, you go on Twitter, and it's like, do we really need your alma mater, South Florida, playing against Central Michigan in the freaking Beef O'Brady's Bowl? Right, like, yeah. do we need that? This is terrible. Bowls used to mean something. And I just, I, I can't wrap my head around that line of thinking. Like, if you don't want to watch South Florida and Central Michigan, then, then don't watch it. But it doesn't hurt anybody. Uh, and same thing with, you know, Jags and Texans on a, on a uh, Thursday night. Yeah. What else, what else are you going to do on a Thursday? Would you rather have it or not have it? I mean, what's the problem here? Yeah, well, that's also something that people talk about when they talk about extra football outside of the NFL, like spring leagues, like the USFL in some incarnation is going to be playing, I guess, shortly yes. after uh, the NFL, after the Super Bowl. And I've always have been of the belief that I'm OK watching another league or having more football, but like I don't want to watch a carbon copy. You know, Give me a league that has like five guys on the line of scrimmage and you can have multiple forward passes behind the line or. Even like mm-hmm. making making punts recoverable by the uh, okay by the by the punting team, you know, give me some some unique that I'm not going to see from September to February. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. Like I I, I was with you, and then you said two multiple forward passes, and I'm like, whoa, 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 yeah. hold on, buddy, behind you the know, line of scrimmage. Go, let's not get okay behind the line of scrimmage. Still, like yeah. I, I don't know, man. That's that's pretty out there. Yeah. I will say this about the the USFL. I, I'm a, I'm a sucker for anything USFL related, and that's because the original USFL happened when I was 
13 and 14 years old, which mm-hmm. is, of course, when the sports world attained perfection. And so, you know, I just, I can, I can see just like it was yesterday, the, the uniforms of the Michigan Panthers and the Philadelphia stars. And like, that was to me, that was as big as the NFL, because, you know, when you're in seventh and eighth grade, you don't have anything to do except watch sports. And the, uh, the, you know, there, there wasn't ESPN existed, but it didn't have like big name sports on all the time. There was no NFL Sunday ticket or NBA league pass where you could just watch literally whatever you want. And so when I was, when I was that age, a football game in, in April was a, was a gift. I'm watching every second of that because a, I got nothing better to do and B it's a football game. And they had guys that I had heard of from college. You know, I had, uh, there was Herschel Walker. There was Anthony Carter. There was a lot of um, Steve Young played in that league. There was, there was a lot Mm -hmm. of big name guys that we knew about from college. And it it was, uh, I just have such irrationally fond memories of the USFL that they can, they're they're doing it exactly right because uh from what i've seen they're going to have the same franchises and the mm-hmm. same uniforms and everything and that's i mean i'm yeah they've got me they've got me right where they want me i'll buy whatever merch they want me to buy just i'm just throwing money at my screen right now yeah i definitely think the brand recognition is going to help in the long run because i mean i when i was living in atlanta i went to an alliance of american football game and it was, okay. it was, it was fine, but you, you definitely had the feeling this was going to take a long time to really kind of resonate with people, especially if you're living in a town where they have, you know, like three major professional sports. Cause I mean, I don't like basketball, so I would much rather go to a football game than the bad, yeah. the, the Hawks game. But yeah, it, okay. I think the USFL definitely has that brand recognition to try to tap into something. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's purely it's purely timing. Had that league been five years earlier, I wouldn't have remembered it. Had it been five years later, I would have been in college and, and probably not paying quite as much of attention. But it was just, you know, right in the sweet spot for me. And I guess um, they know there's a lot of people in my demographic who have, <laughs> have disposable income, I guess. Right. Now, for... Pro football reference it eventually got absorbed into being um, into a bigger entity, uh, sports reference. Correct. Now, was that like, I guess, when you start distancing yourself from pro football reference, or how did you basically end up kind of leaving it off to in, in other people's hands? Yeah, it, it um, I, so I guess I, I know that you weren't intending to apply anything, but when you say distancing, I just want to make sure that the listeners understand that I'm, I wasn't distancing from something that I wasn't happy with or anything right. like that. I was, uh, it was more like stepping away, I think would be probably the, the terminology that I would use. Sure. So I think I, when it switched was when Sean and so there was uh, the other, the third guy was Justin Kubatko who, who did basketball reference in the same sort of way that I did. Uh, pro football reference he you know Sean knew him and encouraged him to to start a basketball version of the site and there's a point where Sean and Justin quit their day jobs and you know became full-time sports reference people and I gave that a lot of consideration 
but I just, I enjoy my day job too much. And so I wanted, I wanted to keep, I wanted to keep um, doing what I do uh, as an occupation and it just, the site, the, the football part of the site just needed someone who was able to devote more time to it than that. And so, yeah, I sold and I'm using aggressive air quotes on sold. I, I sold Pro Football Reference um, to Sean for a uh, for a piece of the bigger corporation. And you know what that means is that uh, if you know if you're if you're a computer engineer, you know that there uh, that there's a lot of benefits to be had by integrating the code behind the scenes so that we could add new sports easily and keep them all in the same format and um, you know, at the time it was, you know, I, I had football, the football part of the site running one way and the basketball part was running a different way and the baseball part was running a different way. And it just made sense to bring all those things together from a technical standpoint so that, so that growth would be a lot easier from there. And I just wasn't capable at that time, nor would I be today of, um, doing what needed to be done to to make sure the site continued to grow and whenever you had left did you walk away thinking that your site was now the go-to resource for historical data for pro football i did yeah and i mean i don't know what do you think is it yeah well that that's what i remember using in high school i mean i i don't know when <laughs> i don't know when football outsiders came out but i always remember using pro football reference as long as i've been watching football whereas that i think yeah. came later on in my fandom yeah I, I think of football outsiders as a different thing you know they, they've got analysis they've got their own metrics and things like that and that's yeah. that's not what sports reference is about and obviously you know they've got some they've got some data um hmm. yeah i i it, it still is among the top results when you search for just about any football player. So people, people still find us and that's, um, that's gratifying. I mean, I, I'm at this point, I haven't written a piece of code for the site in, or entered a piece of data and been easily over a decade, maybe, maybe 12 years, but you know, I, um, I'm, I'm proud of it. I, I sort of alternate between at times thinking anyone could have built this thing. Like this is, this is nothing special. Um, and there was, there was certainly a lot of years where Sean and I would sit around talking and I, I don't remember if Sean felt this way, but I just felt like, you know, ESPN or the NFL could put us out of business in, in a, in a month if they wanted to, you know, if ESPN wanted to build, uh, pro football reference i don't see why they wouldn't and why are they not doing that why are why are we still a thing mm -hmm. and why have haven't we been made obsolete by some you know media giant that wants to that wants to capture that market and i still don't entirely know the answer to that but you know maybe it's maybe there's more to it than than is apparent well, I think a big thing too was your site with the approximate value metric. It had been one of the first uh, attempts of thinking outside the box with measuring uh, players' performance. Would you agree? That's a that's an interesting one because that 
uh, approximate value, which is which is really cool, um, if I do say so myself. <laughs> um, like I came up, so the history of that is it, it really was a quick like weekend project basically that that took on a life of its own. So it, um, at the time, I was writing for ESPN the magazine. And they asked me to do an article on which, uh, and this is this is kind of a strange article, but they were they were paying me, so I wrote the article. It was like which of the college awards led to better NFL careers. So like mm-hmm. Heisman Trophy winners, Outland Trophy, you know the Nagurski Trophy, the uh, the Jim Thorpe Award, all those all those awards that the college. Um, football associations give out like which of those guys have have gone on to better NFL careers and and so you know I realized that if you're looking if you want to ask me which of the Bolitnikoff award winners had the best career well they're all wide receivers and so I can era adjust their numbers and you know I can I can give you an answer to that but if you want me to compare you know Larry Fitzgerald to Jackie Slater I, I how are we doing that Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, like there's no comparable stats and except for games played basically or pro bowls and um, but pro bowl it's standards are, are pretty um, inconsistent across positions. And so there just, there wasn't a way as I wrote that article, I just sort of cobbled together this, this thing real quick but I started thinking about it and, you know, the same thing, if you want to build a draft value chart, like how, how much more valuable have third overall picks been compared to 12th overall picks in the NFL? Well, if you're going to answer that question, you have to, you got to come, you got to have a way to put a number on guys across different positions. That makes sense. And that's a really hard thing to do. And I don't know that, um, I don't know that there had been any serious attempts to do that. And I, and, and the reason there hadn't been serious attempts to do it is because it was a fool's errand. You can't, it can't, it can't be done. Like nobody knows how, how valuable Jackie Slater is compared to Larry Fitzgerald. I don't, I don't, I don't think there is an answer to that, that we could compare our work to, you know, if I, if my metric comes up with, you know, Fitzgerald at 115 and Slater at 108 and yours comes up the other way around. We haven't, there, there's no, there's nothing to compare and see who's right. So um, I put something together and I would, so <laughs> I remember there was, there was one summer where I would, um, I, I hung out on a fantasy football message board back in those days. And I would just like run my approximate value um, numbers for a group of players. And then I would pick guys who were kind of from like starter, but not pro bowl level to like potential hall of fame level and everywhere in between. And I would post 10 guys in alphabetical order on this message board and say, put these guys in order Mm. and tell me, you know, who had the best career out of these guys who had the worst career out of these guys and on down the line. And then I would see what my numbers said and I would compare and see where there were, you know, big gaps in perception compared to what my numbers were spitting out. And then I would make little tweaks and 
again, another fun puzzle that was, you know, occupied a fair amount of my time for, um, you know, a while and was a lot of fun. But it's interesting that you mentioned that because I don't, I barely even think about that when I think about pro football reference and what it is, because that wasn't ever, I, I guess I'd, I guess the lesson there is you don't really know what out of, out of the stuff that you do, you don't really know what of it is going to be interesting to other people or useful five, 10 years down the line. Well, and being that this is a football history show and that, that I've been interested in football history for a while, you know, there's always those conversations of like, how would one player do in a different era? You know, it's like, would Jim Brown do well in today's era? Would, Wes Welker do okay in the 1950s. You know, there, there's always that kind of conversation because how drastically the game changes from one era to the other. You know, even guys back, you know, in the early 1900s may fare well today, but they wouldn't necessarily do well in the early 60s or so on and so forth. Hmm. So it, it was always interesting to kind of see an attempt to provide a reasonable way to make an argument one way or the other. Yeah. So what uh let's let's talk about insane ideas for just a second like mm -hmm. my this, this is a bit off topic but my theory is that the level of of everything play coaching everything in all the all the major sports is getting better at at a rate that's um far faster than than we understand so i think let me let me try and I've had this conversation in a baseball context with some people, but I think um, I'm not I'm not willing to say that uh, if you time traveled peak Ladanian Tomlinson. So when when was Ladanian Tomlinson's peak? Like the early two thousands? Yeah, two thousand six, I think, when he broke the record. Okay, so if if you time traveled two thousand six Ladanian Tomlinson to today. I'm not sure he's a starter. Really? Yeah, I'm insane. I, I, I love no, it. I love I it. What's nothing, wrong with it? I have nothing to back this up, but that, that's my gut feeling. And if you try, okay, so who was, who was uh, Eric Dickerson? Okay. If you, time, if you time travel Eric Dickerson to today, he's, he's, he doesn't make a roster. I, I'm not sure he's a college player. Now, I mean, not a big time college player. Now, obviously, if you take if you take Eric Dickerson and 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 make him be born in in uh, 1998, so that he's 24 years old right now or whatever, then that's a different story because now he's grown up with coaching and the nutrition and all that stuff. But uh, yeah, I think if if the 2021 Jacksonville Jaguars played a game against the Super Bowl champions from 1995. I, I think the Jags kill them. Well, that – so the team comparison, I think, people get too carried away with. Like, in, in some regards, I would agree with you that I, if one of Lombardi's teams played the Jacksonville Jaguars tomorrow of 2021, oh. I don't think it, it wouldn't be close. 
but I, I, I wouldn't put it past, say, like the Dallas Cowboys of the 1990s could potentially beat like one of the early 2000s Patriots teams. And I, I, I would say definitely, actually, the 2004 Patriots could defeat the Jacksonville Jaguars of today. I, and I would agree that Dickerson may have a harder time adapting into the NFL today, but I still think L, LT would do well today because I still think that the separation between 80 and today isn't as, or is more vast than 2006 and 2021. And yeah. like you, and like you, I have no evidence to back this up, but it, <laughs> it, would, it would just seem that like if LT grew up in a time in which he had a full-time training staff and a nutritionist that he could adapt well to the standards of today. You're probably right. Um, I, I want to make it clear to your listeners that I'm an idiot and nothing that I say should be taken serious in any way. You're, out of, the, um, you're out of the box. Let's not confuse it. too. <laughs> Yeah, so I may, maybe I was, uh, uh, yeah, I, I reached a little bit by throwing LaDainian Tomlinson in there, but like, I don't know, Jerome Bettis, um, go back, go back to the 90s. Um, and certainly, like, yeah, you go back to six, I mean, the conversation we had about um, stat keepers, and like, go back and read stories about um, NFL scouting in the early days i mean not, not even the 30s and 40s where there was no scouting but even in the 60s and 70s scouting was like um the average the average dude with an internet connection does more scouting than nfl teams did at a certain point not that long ago and like how is it credible that um NFL scouting departments have changed from where they were in 1960 to where they are today and NFL coaching staffs and schemes and just like the amount of time these guys spend um, cooking up, cooking up schemes that have been evolving over decades. Um, Everything about the NFL and all the other sports leagues is so much more professional now I don't understand why the same wouldn't hold true for the players on the field as well. I mean, when I was in, when I was in uh, junior high, this was in the eighties, I played baseball and basketball and I was told in the eighties not to lift weights. Mm-hmm. Now, not for football, football coaches would tell you to lift weights, but baseball and basketball coaches told you don't lift weights, you will get too muscle bound, you'll lose your flexibility. And that wasn't that long ago. And now, I mean, in baseball, everybody looks like a middle linebacker. Those guys are ridiculous athletes, whereas in the 80s, they were, um, they look like accountants. And um I don't doubt that those guys are the dudes who played baseball and football and basketball in the seventies and sixties and eighties were really smart and every bit as competitive as the players are today, but they just, and, and if, if they had grown up today with those same personalities, they'd be in the NFL today, but um they didn't and the the physical comparison and the, the amount of prep, preparation and just overall uh, professionalism that goes into the whole thing is is worlds apart do you think also because a lot of 
players in professional sports, especially the younger players in today's game, are focusing more on one sport from the time they're in junior high as opposed to playing a more well-rounded? That's a good question. I, I don't know. I don't know if that yeah. I don't know if that would apply to coaching, obviously, because you're not incorporating the physical traits, but just as far as playing the professional sports, I've always had been kind of been curious if the concentration on one sport that most of them at this point are year round, because if they play with a school team, they yep. probably tra- they probably are a part of a travel team in some capacity. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, that's that's a part of it. Just um, the the level of the level of savvy that everyone, the, just the amount of study of the game that has been put in um, cumulatively over the course of a lifetime of a guy who arrives on NFL draft day, you know, in, in the guys who get drafted in April, if you just compare how much thought and study they have put into the game, never mind the physical preparation. Um, compared to, you know, a guy who was drafted in 1982. Yeah, there's definitely the the resources component. I mean, to, to go back to what you were talking about scouting earlier, um, there was a story that uh, Paul Brown had drafted a guy by just reading about him in the newspaper. He might have seen yeah. a couple a couple reels from him. And yeah. uh, it, was a, it was a kid out and a quarterback in um, Stanford. And he drafted him, but Paul Brown was such an intricate play caller that, you know, his audibles and his vernaculars were, you know, so long and so in depth, but the guy had a lisp. (laughs) So he never took the time to go meet him. He never did the appropriate scouting. And that's why I kind of want with, even if you don't travel to see a candidate, at least if you could see interviews and do stuff like that, that kind of resources still give you a much bigger leg up about doing that much extra lifting now. Yeah. But it's uh, it is interesting to kind of consider how we got to the this point where the athletes today are just more so superhuman than the ones back then. Yeah, and they and they just also didn't um, they didn't have uh, fo- football was not or you know pro sports was not the be all and end all like it is now. And it wasn't nearly as lucrative. And I remember when when I was writing the blog, I would go back and read old old newspapers about the early NFL drafts from the, from the late sixties. And there were tons of guys who were first round picks who were like, "Ah, I might go sell insurance. Uh, (laughs) I'm not sure if this NFL thing is a better idea. I read, I read one about a, a trade um, this was late sixties. You know, this is modern football. We're not talking about 1920 here. Um, there was a trade that was made in part because one of the guys like had an, had an off season or, or you know, like his real job was selling insurance and his, his company's office was in Atlanta. So he, you know, he wanted to be traded to the Falcons or, or something like that. And right. Like, <laughs> like a kid growing up today, like you, um, in, in this world, you know, that you can't, you can't even wrap your mind around. That. That's right. hard for me to wrap my mind. Yeah. I think uh, Chuck Ben his nickname was concrete Charlie. Cause I think he sold concrete yeah. in the off season. Yeah. I, I did a, I did a, a thing on um, an old AFL player named George Webster who played with the Oilers and was a, was a pass rusher. 
and he sold cars in the off season. And well, he didn't sell cars, but he worked at a car dealership in the off season. And, and a reporter asked him if he sold any cars, or if he, have you sold any cars yet, George? And he said, uh, no, but I've been in field goal range a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, they definitely, they definitely had a, a good personality because a lot of them were, they said that they would have jobs in the off season, but essentially they were just spokespeople yeah. for certain yeah, I guess brands so. and companies. Hey, speaking of field goal range, mm-hmm. like that's another, that's another area where we can clearly see that um, it's a, it's a different game mm-hmm. from, you know, when I was growing up, a 40 yard field goal was, whew, I don't know. That, that's not, um, that's no sure thing at all. And yeah. now it's a, it, those are, that's like a 90% proposition. Now, part of that would be field conditions and and so forth, but like kickers are just way better in every objective way we can measure the athletes are way better. Well, yeah, the, the Buffalo bills, Scott Norwood, when he missed that field, the field goal against the giants, I think that was 47. Yeah. Which, you know, it's, it's not a chip shot, but in today's game, it would be almost, I would say eight out of nine times out of 10, they're going to make that. Yeah. That's What do you think about uh, four-point field goals over 60 yards? I'm, uh, I'm anti I'm, – I'm in favor of working to remove kicking, all kicking from the game. Wow. Uh, in, in any way possible. Now, I, I'm not saying that's possible, but I want it de-emphasized. Um, so m- my theory on that is that um, – when football was, I'm I'm not a historian of like pre NFL football, mm-hmm. like you know in late 1800s when when Army is playing Harvard every year. Like I don't I don't know much about that, but like back in those days, I think you know football evolved from rugby. I think in some sense, or right. it's a cousin of rugby. And there's a you know rugby is about running and kicking almost equally and it's all integrated together and i think football kind of used to be like that but like football just isn't about that anymore and there's the fact that kicking still exists in football is just a weird bizarre artifact that uh is it's, it's a historical accident and we should seek to get rid of it as much as we can now i'm not in favor of just like going cold turkey and and <laughs> eliminating all field goals um from the start but i'm i'm definitely like i don't see why we need to kick extra points like line them up you you can go from the one yard line for one or you can go from the two yard line for two those are your choices or or whatever uh, but we don't need an extra point there's no sense having an extra point um i, I think that, a little harder to get rid of well i think those were that was talked about, I think, in the beginning. I think Bill Belichick actually had a good idea when they were discussing moving the field goal or the extra point back from where it was. I, I don't remember when they moved in 2013, 2014. Yeah, somewhere around it. I think he actually suggested a few years before that, if they score a touchdown, give them seven points, and they have to go for it after. And if they go for it, they get another point, and if they don't make it, they lose a point. Huh, okay. Which was interesting. But I, I'm kind of in the different camp, though, because 
I actually would like to see a little more kicking in the sense of, so kind of going to the early 1800s or the late 1800s, there actually used to be an onside scrimmage kick. And it's still, it still is that way in Canada where anybody who was behind the kicker could go down and recover the ball as long as it went 10 yards downfield. And that was before they had the forward pass. So say the center would take the ball or the uh, quarterback would take the ball from center and he would kick it. The three backs that were behind him would rush to go receive it 10 yards or recover it downfield. And Canadian football, I believe, does this to a certain extent. Um, but I think it would be cool, say, if you're kicking or if you're lining to kick a field goal and you have someone that motions around, you know, that can kind of open the game up in the perspective of, you know, having that receiver that is usually like on the hands team on an onside kick that can run mm-hmm. down and jump up for the ball, or that can even open up fake field goal opportunities and increase the game strategy from that standpoint, which will never happen, oh. I think, because there's probably too much injury liability that goes along with it. But yeah, I mean, I think that's a problem with kickoffs and, and probably punts as well. And I don't, I don't know how to get rid of kickoffs or punts, to be honest. I don't, I don't really like the idea of just giving the balls 25 that that doesn't feel right to me yeah i'm, I'm the um, same way we don't there's not a lot of coffin corner kicks either anymore no yeah punters are really good too at, yeah. uh, now compared to compared to what they used to be um okay now you, you got me thinking about since since you like uh you, you're a fan of insane ideas you you like uh tinkering with rules here's one that i think would be interesting um Okay, <clears throat> so every year, the the rules for what constitutes a first down change, but nobody knows what they're going to be until um, until like the day before the opening kickoff. So, like maybe you're going to have five plays to gain seventeen yards, or maybe you're going to have three plays to gain eight yards. Maybe like now we have four plays to gain 10 yards. And so, you know, there's a, there's a set of 20 possibilities okay. that might happen in any given season, but you have to prepare. You've got to, you've got to go into the season prepared for all of those as a coach. Okay. And then on the, on, on football Eve, uh, the commissioner pulls one out of the, out of the, out of the hopper and says, okay, uh, this year, the rules are going to be the, you know, you need 11 yards for a first down and you've got three plays to get it. Well, I would imagine you would have to do something like that. Oh, so you're saying go through training camp, pre- preparing for all these possibilities. Yeah, you, you, you got you to build a team that's capable of, uh, and, uh, I mean, another possibility is you, you do that before every game. Like uh, before every game, you change the rules about what, a, what constitutes a first down insane i've yeah i mean i think you thought my multiple forward passes behind the line of scrimmage was insane <laughs> <laughs> now we're talking about a well, whole new sport man. see it's interesting though because like um this doesn't change the way football looks right uh, yeah. i mean so multiple multiple forward passes definitely feels to me like a different game like there's a whole collection of stuff that you could do then that you cannot do now whereas um you know this just changes game plans but i don't know like people are still going to line up with the quarterback and throw some passes and occasionally run the ball i i think i i guess in a training camp perspective 
it, it does prepare you a lot for situational football. And it definitely would prepare you a lot for your overall game planning. But sometimes I worry if other parts of the game would suffer because you had to focus on this too much, especially if you're changing it week by week. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's probably a terrible idea. Um, but now what about obviously in the past couple of weeks, overtime has been a huge yep. deal in terms of, <laughs> you know, when Kansas city got the ball and it scored immediately on Buffalo, there was a big outcry to change rules. Yep. And then last week you really don't hear much of it, maybe from Kansas no. city fans, but everyone all of a sudden is okay with it. What do you think would be an appropriate method to kind of make overtime rules simpler and you did bring up one rule back in your blog that i don't know if you would remember but it was actually it was two i don't remember if it was going for two for both teams but the one i specifically remember was instead of overtime get rid of overtime and just count ties as non-wins yeah um can't do that in the playoffs though unfortunately right. so um yeah i i mean i i like the idea of ties um, I mean, you could count them as non-wins or you can count them as ties um, in the in the regular season, like uh, a, a set of standings that has win, loss and tie is a more honest set of standings than a set of standings that has just win and loss, you know, so um, I really don't see a problem with that. In the playoffs, okay, so I have these two friends, shout out, Adam and Moral. Um who have an idea about fixing overtime that I hate. I hate it. I can't even tell you how much I hate it. I'm shaking with rage over here, but yet um, I cannot find, (laughs) I can't find a flaw in their logical argument that this is a good way to do it. And uh, I mean, I don't know. I'm sure other people have thought of this before, but um, their proposal is if the game is tied when the clock expires, you just keep playing until it's not tied. Sounds simple. <laughs> it sounds terrible. I hate it because <laughs> when the game is over, the game is over. Uh-huh. And now you need a tiebreaker. Um, but uh, so I'm just going to, I'm going to let you, I'm going to let your listeners just ponder that because it's taken me, it's taken me a lot of uh, I've been through the five stages of whatever you go through when you hate something until you realize that it's actually good. I also have heard an interesting idea about the team that wins the kickoff from the beginning of the game is going to be the one that receives it at the beginning of overtime. So that would kind of change the play calling for a person or the team yeah. that they have to instead of kick a field goal to go into overtime, if they know the other team is going to get the ball, maybe they'll be more aggressive instead of just kneeling the ball or maybe even go yeah. for fourth down if they're near a goal um, line. Yeah. I, I, here, here's a thought that I don't know that I've heard, although I'm sure I'm not the first person to think of it. How about just uh, no overtime and whoever has more yards is the, is the winner. Oh, that's you not, have a tiebreaker. That's not going to sit well. <laughs> of course yeah. of course it's not gonna no. sit well but like i mean in some sense it's it's a known thing like there i can i you can imagine how the tv screen would then have like a little a little token on the on the side of the team that currently has the tiebreaker mm-hmm. and so like it before you start your final drive you know you're down three 
and you have the ball at the 30 yard line with a minute left, like, you know, whether you're going to end up with the yardage tiebreaker or not. So, you know, whether you need a field goal or a touchdown, probably. Right. Yeah. I just do your strategy accordingly. It's not going to sit well. No one's going to like that. Yeah. I I think no matter what overtime will you come up with, no one's going to like it. (laughs) Although I mean, it's, you know, some people have also said just play a full 10 minute or if it's in the playoffs, play a full extra quarter. And obviously in the playoffs, you're going to have to keep going until someone wins. But I guess that's also another basic approach that you could. Yeah, I mean, you, you really can't. I mean, that, that could go on for a whole another game, potentially, uh, in the worst case scenario. And I, we want more football, though. Uh, <laughs> that's a good point. But uh, I think you do have some injury concerns there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that's that's a huge part too that the players' association has to, mm-hmm. if I if I if I read that correctly, has to sign off on that. Do you do anything like in your spare time now with these kind of um, like side research projects with football research or football stats or kind of like the stuff you were doing with your blog post? Do you ever do it just for fun in your spare time? Well, right now, what I what I spend most of my spare time doing is uh, gambling. Like, nice. the, yeah. so yes, I I I'm, I do nothing but uh, projects involving sports data analysis, but mostly they're they're um, with the uh, the goal in mind of getting slightly better at at winning bets. Now that you mentioned betting, there was another website I do remember, and this might have been a little bit earlier than 2010 when I was using uh, Pro Football Reference. It was a Wizard of Odds. Yeah, I've heard about that, that one. I, I I wasn't aware of it at the time, but since since I've uh, dived into some of the old gambling literature, I, I have been made aware of it. Yeah, I uh, a lot of my vacations growing up with my family were to Vegas when they sort of pivoted their image from being, you know, like the, you know, adult entertainment capital to being like a family yep. resort town. And uh, I used to just have a lot of interest in seeing the casinos and wondering what it was like to play blackjack. And once my father taught me, I was interested in learning about probabilities and, yep. you know, of course, everybody thinks they can count cards and so they have to kind of do multiple <laughs> things in their head at once. But that was a big, that was a big um, yep. site that I used to learn how to play different games, like three card poker and stuff like that. And then okay. figure out what the odds were. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, gambling and sports are both uh, excellent uh, teaching opportunities for for probability. And yeah, so I actually, you know, my my day job is teaching uh, teaching math at a college, and occasionally I'll teach statistics. And it occurs to me that if you're a sports fan, so you there used to be a website out there, and I I don't remember the name of it, and I don't know if it's still there, but you can imagine it easily. So you you enter in a number between zero and a hundred and it'll spit back out at you uh, a baseball situation where the probability of winning is that percentage. So if you enter 19, it'll say, okay, you know, if it's the eighth inning and you're down four to one at the beginning of, of and you have a runner on first and two outs, you have a 19% chance of winning. And if you're a sports fan, if you've watched a million baseball games, then that like 
that connects a feeling in your body that you know, you know what your chance of winning is if, if you're in that situation. If you're a baseball fan and you've watched enough baseball games um, and that connects it to a number 19. And so I, I realized that people who are not sports fans, sometimes, I mean, obviously people are all different, but like some non-sports fans don't have, um, they don't have anything in their experience that they care as deeply about as sports fans care about sports that they can that they can use to understand probabilities there's there's nothing in the in the life of a non-sports fan of many non-sports fans that teaches them about probabilities in the same way yeah there's not a whole lot of other pastimes that would incorporate numbers in the same way sports do yeah, I mean games. Uh, yeah, gaming. If you're, if you're if you're a big bridge player or you know oh. board games or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I, I play a little backgammon, and my uh, godfather tried to teach me bridge, and that was just too over my head. Yeah, I, I never have actually played bridge, but I do enjoy. I enjoy a variety of board games. No, something other that came to mind while you were talking was about. Um, situations and giving your percentage of winning and you know anytime i see sunday night football there's always that next gen stats that come up saying your winning probability is yep. this much and it, it almost seems like sometimes that analytics it almost feels like a license to act recklessly because <laughs> i mean I, I don't know if you saw this game earlier or maybe i guess it was about a month ago at this time it was the chargers and the raiders the last game of the season and uh, yeah i didn't i didn't stay up for that one the the Raiders are not the Raiders. The Chargers went for it. They were only down three points and towards the beginning of the third quarter, and they decided to go for it at their own 18-yard line. And I can't imagine, and obviously the coach Brandon Staley is a huge analytics believer, and I'm I'm of the opinion that you know you should have a good balance between using that to aid your decision making, but also being able to kind of get a feel for how your team is playing and seeing, you know really what kind of what your personnel is doing on the field right now so do you think that a lot of teams based off like kind of what you see when you watch football are using analytics in the appropriate way or do you think a lot of teams are now getting carried away and allowing them to coach for them uh i well hmm. i'm not comfortable really saying either one of those things Uh, i I do think just that's just because i'm not following the nfl as closely as i used to sure um, but, but it's certainly, well, I'll say this. So I have a, a, I always judge these things with a gut feel test and namely when my team is on defense, if I'm, so I don't have an NFL team, but I have, I have a college football team that I'm passionate about, which is the Oklahoma state Cowboys. So that's, that's the only, that's the only, uh, sports team that I'm, uh, that I'm always, um, invested in. And so let's say I'm watching an Oklahoma state cowboy game and it's the, they are on my, my team's on defense and it's fourth and one. Um, most of the time, almost regardless of where we are in the field, I'm really happy to see the punter trot onto the field. And that to me is evidence that probably going forward is the right call. And, um, 
because you know if I'm if I'm scared of you going for it as the defense, then maybe you should maybe you should be going for it. You know, if I want you to punt, if I'm happy for you to punt, maybe you shouldn't be punting. Um, and I will say that over the year, like now when I watch a game, I'm just as likely to say, whoa, I'm really not sure. I'm kind of glad they're going for it here. Yeah, I'd like to see them try to go for it here. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm saying that much more often than I used to. And so that to me tells me that maybe we're, we're kind of at an equilibrium with regard to fourth downs that kind of makes sense. Yeah. So I'm, I used to only see errors on one side of the equation and now I'm seeing what feels like errors on both sides. So that probably means we're about right. Yeah. And I think oftentimes it's usually the ones that get too carried away with it. that get the most attention. And I think given, yeah. given the fact that it was a primetime game and it was a game that had a lot of playoff implications, it added that much more to the conversation, but yeah, I was just kind of curious to see, hear people's opinions about do they think analytics are getting a little too carried away as opposed to, because there was a while where people thought that analytics couldn't really work well in football because of the amount of variables that go in with having 22 players on the field at once. But clearly it's had some situational purposes for teams. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the word analytics is, is used in an oversimplified way by, by everyone, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's, um, and, and if you go on Twitter in certain segments of Twitter, the word analytics is synonymous with basically anything I don't like about football today. And it's like, no, that's not what analytics is. And it, it's, you know, there's, it, it's very rare that the analytics say anything, right? The analytics is not, a, a magic eight ball that tells you the answer there's good analytic you know there there are there are good uses of analytics and there are bad uses of analytics there's good analytics and there's bad analytics you know just like you can throw a pass well or you can throw a pass poorly and miss your target you know you can um you can do a study that's good uh, or you can do a study that's not good and um there's yeah like i say there's good analytics and there's bad analytics. And, and so, so grouping everything under the, under the umbrella of analytics just isn't all that useful. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, I guess the last thing I want to close off on is simply just talking about the future, I, I guess, of stats and predictive analysis and how it kind of intertwines with teams and sports betting. I mean, do you see a lot of symmetry that's coming between a lot of these fields, especially now that there's a lot more em- embraced um, for NFL and NFL teams and sports betting. And obviously, as we just talked about a lot of teams using this analysis and good or bad analytics driving their decision. Do you think we're moving a lot more towards this numbers based uh, sports sports industry than we ever had before or sports era? Uh, that seems to be the way we're moving. I mean, I think that's, it's hard to argue against that. Um, I think, yeah, I don't, I don't know of a, I don't know of any evidence that, that anything's being reined in or, or pulled back or anything. And I think, you know, in the, in the eighties when Bill James was doing things, there was, you know, just the amount of computing power available. And even in the nineties and early two thousands, 
when I was doing studies on fantasy football, you know, you, you just only have games, rushes, yards, touchdowns, you know, to look at, and you can look at that stuff game by game. But we, at that time, I didn't have a lot of play-by-play data. That's new. But now with these, you know, with these motion trackers and everything, mm-hmm. the level of data that they have is um, so much more than it used to be. And there's even, there's, there's more room to get better. Like right now, I know that the NBA has had uh, motion tracking cameras in all their arenas for a few years. And so there's, there's, there's a, uh, a few years worth of data that has, um, every player and where they are on the court at every at every instant and where the ball is and so that's five players on each team and a smaller court and it's still like there's still massive limitations to what they can do just because of technology and computing power so they can't exactly um they can't exactly analyze everything that you would think they would be able to simply because a, you know, that's still too much data to sort through and figure out mm-hmm. and B um, the technology doesn't quite work the way it ought to some of the times. And so there's still a lot of room to do more there. And that's basketball where you get 10 players instead of football where you get 22. So like, I, I'm not up to speed on what the cutting edge is in terms of football analysis. I don't have any idea what front offices are doing, um, but they're only doing more of it. And, and we're not, we're not close to, I don't think a, a plateau. Yeah. Well, those who control the data control the future. So <laughs> there's definitely a race for it. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Doug, I hope I speak for both of us when I say that I enjoyed this conversation a lot. And it was great to bounce around these insane ideas and to hear about such an influential site. I mean, it was a big part of me whenever I was uh, really diving deep into my football fandom. And I'm sure for a lot of people listening, it's the same way. So I appreciate you taking the time. Well, um, uh, that's almost the, the thing that I like hearing more than anything else. Like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a teacher for a living and I I just love the fact that um, the students that I come into contact with are are just maybe ever so slightly better uh, going forward because of their interactions with me. And so uh, you're you're an ever so slightly uh, more informed football fan because of some stuff that I did for fun uh, many years ago, and that's that's extremely gratifying to me. 